Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Welcome to today's episode of Stop the Killing, and it is an exciting one. Well, I'm excited because not only am I going to be spending time with my female law enforcement trailblazer sidekick, Catherine Schweit, we are going to be joined today by Jackie Moulton. Jackie's journey through the UK police service was characterised by her ascent through the ranks within a predominantly male and heterosexual environment as an openly gay woman detective in the 70s, 80s and 90s. I mean, literally smashing glass ceilings everywhere she went. She served in the formidable Flying Squad, Murder Squad and the Fraud Squad and also played a pivotal role as a whistleblower against police corruption in the 1980s. Bottom line is Jackie is not someone to mess with. And you might be thinking, oh, she sounds like a familiar character. Well, that's because you may know Jackie as the real-life inspiration for the iconic character of DCI Jane Tennyson in the Prime Suspect drama series. I mean, if you were asked who's going to play you on TV, you'd be pretty stoked to hear it was the award-winning Helen Mirren, right? Well, with that, let's get into today's episode. Hi. Hello. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, good. Nice to see you, Catherine. You okay? Uh, yeah, I'm, like, uh, I'm on the what? floor in a room in a house that I'm, I'm visiting. Yeah, I like that color green, Sarah, in your wall. I love that. I'm in my office, so I just have a brick wall. <laughs> no, but I feel we're all very themed. You look very brick wally in your jumper as well. Yeah, you're trying to <laughs> camouflage. It wasn't conscious. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, Jackie, Catherine, and I have just finished binging your book that's recently come out. Do you want to tell the audience the title, where they can find it, and, and how it all came about? Crazy yes. fun to read. Sure, the, thank you. The book is called The Real Prime Suspect, and I did it with a ghostwriter called Helene Mulholland. It's on Amazon, or mainly on Amazon, I think, and some of the bookshops sell it. So it's doing all right. So it was released in August 22 in hardback. It's now paperback doing well. I get lots and lots of comments just that pop into my social media or whatever or emails or messenger. It's just amazing, you know, the comments and kindness that people have said. And there's one woman, she joined the police because of prime suspect. There's a deputy chief constable who just recently retired. And he said, I joined Hammersmith as a naive young inspector. And you taught me about humanity and treating wow. staff in such a way, the quality of, of your relationships with the staff. And he said, brave, fair, and supportive boss. And he said, I have um, I hope that I took that on in my own career. And he ended up with Deputy Chief Constable. There's lots. There's just lots. 
And, you know, it warms your heart, to be perfectly honest. Was there anything unexpected that you got in terms of comments back? There was one guy who wrote to me, he said, you won't remember me. And he said, I went to a shooting in the club and he dealt with it as best he could. He called in the murder squad, obviously. And so he was criticised and he said, you won't remember this, but you called in the SIO, the senior investigating officer, you stuck up for me and you made the senior investigating officer apologise to me for his adverse comments. And he said, <laughs> so I, I will never forget that from you. And he kind of think, I do remember the incident once he told me it wasn't in my consciousness. But it's stuff like that. You, you know, I was a bit of a tough cookie uh, to work for. But equally, I would defend my team to the death or my detectives if they'd done the right thing, if you saw what I mean. So any criticism externally that wasn't warranted, I would defend them. I would criticise them myself internally for stuff. And I had really, really high standards. And they knew that. They knew that. But, um, you know, God help anybody else that comes in unwarranted like that. Just little things like that that warm your heart. And things like, you know, kind of thank you from women in the jobs today for uh, laying the trail, you know, and fighting for us. Can you just tell the audience how you became the show? Because I think they'll want to know. So, so 1991, I met Linda LaPlante, a crime writer, who wanted to write a book about a female DCI, Detective Chief Inspector. She did her research and found that there were three Detective Chief Inspectors in the Metropolitan Police, three females. So she spoke to a police officer that had left, and he said, oh, well, you need to speak to Jackie. And then he contacted me and said, can you speak to Linda LaPlante? To be honest, I didn't really think much about it, and I made an arrangement to meet, so I went to her house, and then that started this whole relationship because she showed me this script that she'd written called Brian Suspect, and I said, oh, that's a great title. And so she said, could you just read it and let me know what you think? So I'll make you a bit of supper. So she made me some supper. I read this, and I thought, well, this is, you know, I can see where she's coming from, but she's not a DCI. So I said, that's what I said to her so she said will you help me and I said yes so maybe for the six nine months I'd go and see her kind of weekly or 10 days and then I I, it felt like therapy felt like therapy and then I say oh yes and another thing and another thing and another thing and another thing so it's kind of (laughs) talking to her kind of my process obviously my process (laughs) and then she never take a note she'll write one thing down but kind of soaked it all up and then she'd redo the script and then these things would start to come into the script my experiences you know my habit always be doing this and used to smoke and blah 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 anyway and then she she said Helen Mirren was the actors play the DCI Tennyson I met her and then the rest is history I think it just changed her life it changed my life it changed Helen Mirren's life I think to be fair and uh, I'm forever Mm -hmm. grateful to it forever grateful to that program I think in law enforcement, you have to be assertive on the street. It, it, you know, I plenty, there's plenty of situations where you can be bullied past things, not necessarily just by another law enforcement officer, but by the people that you're actually working with. But, you know, see if this makes sense. I call it a knee locking moment. When you're out there and you're having to be the tallest person when you're not, you have to stand as tall as you can and you have to lock your knees 
and you know c- keep your head up and your your posture is as best you can and you right it's like a, i am in charge right now and so suddenly you're t- a little bit taller and your knees are locked and by the time i got home i was like I'm tired. There was a, a guy that I worked with at Trevor, and um, we were working teams when we were doing this fraud investigation. And he was obviously you know, six foot two or whatever. And there was always a presumption that when, when we made appointments to see people, that he was a detective inspector. And he loved it because he would say, No, I'm not the detective inspector. This is the detective inspector. And he loved it. He, he kind of loved saying, no, I'm not the boss for years. And it was lovely, absolutely lovely. And I think often there was a presumption that they would always go to the man and presume that they were the boss, always. I think you used also the word trail, you know, like setting the trail for women. And mm. law it's not conscious. You're never conscious of these things because you're just doing the job. I think it still surprises me with the accolades or comments that I get because I think, well, I didn't have any option. That's the point. You're there. You get on with it. Of course, it would upset me on many, many occasions. You think, well, where am I going to go? This is it. This is the status quo and stuff. I'm talking to the police a lot at the minute about culture. Mm. And they're saying, I don't know how you stood it. How did you stand it? I said, well, I never really thought about it. I just got on with it. And the difference, I think, is that it was the externalization of what I did was always dealing with the public and the criminals, etc. And I loved all of that. Uh, and the internal was all the rubbish that was behind you and the misogyny and the comments and everything. But I left that behind as much as I could because I was driven by doing the job and I absolutely loved, you know, being a police officer. Do you know what's interesting, though, going back to even just when you said you didn't feel like trailblazers. You just kind of had to get on with the job. The interesting yeah. thing is that you both stepped into a career that was probably not necessarily the norm for for the times that you both stepped into it as women. So you kind of, you know, made that choice. What made you make that choice? Yeah. So, uh... <laughs> oh. well, there's lots of things. I'm just thinking. There's I love the pause. <laughs> I love the pause. The yeah, pause. and the smirk. If you're not watching, she's got a great big grin on her face. So the, so the thing is that I'm a product of the 50s, so obviously much older than you two. And then I noticed that I knew that my sexuality was different in my teenage years, and I felt real, real shame about it. That's one aspect of it. The second aspect is that when I was 11, you take this exam at school and it defines you for the rest of your life back then. Oh, and God, you yeah. Pass an exam called the 11 plus. My sister and brother both passed it. They went to the top grammar schools and I failed it. So therefore, there were huge limitations about career. Not many women went to university. Hardly anybody went to university. And what was I wanting to do? Now, I have to tell you that it is innately from about 10 or 11 years of age I was fascinated by the dark side, fascinated about why people do the things that they do. I don't know where it comes from. It was within me. And the other thing that I've always had, my mum would say, even since you could walk or talk, you chatted, 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 chatted. And I'm, you know, it's a good communicator or chatter or professional curiosity. I don't know what it was, but the point about it is that I enjoyed talking to people, finding out lots of things about them, and, and and also I was attracted to the dark side. So 
on the TV, there were two great TV programs, fictional programs. One was called No Hiding Place and the other one was called Dixon of Dark Green and they were my favourite programs. They were police programs. So it all kind of naturally fitted in for me. So can I ask you a couple of follow-up questions to that? First of all, Sarah is young, but I'm I'm closer to your age for sure. <laughs> and but bless you for thinking that. And <laughs> but then also how crazy unfortunate that your sexuality is part of any decision making from a career standpoint. That was part of the logic. I mean, I did you see that as a factor and and how that well, fit in? The thing about it all is, is that you're not feeling part of within your own kind of um, oh, set yeah. up. So I didn't know anybody that was gay. So I think yeah. it was us wanting to belong to a family. Oh, that makes sense. The police was. It's all unconscious, by the way, Catherine. And Sarah. Right. It's all unconscious. You know, it's only yeah. when you look back on reflection and that you see it. And also, like I said, talk about in the book, you know, my best friend Gareth, who we were going to marry, right. he turned out to be gay as well. And... There was a lot of shame. You have to remember that I'm by then, I'm only in the mid 60s then when I'm a teenager. There's huge amounts, huge amounts of shame. And I didn't know anyone that was, well, part of it you could probably hide away in an institution. Well, my friend uh, Bobby, who I was so close to, taught me how to drive a stick shift. We were so close, but he was living on the other side of the country when he developed AIDS. He never told me, and it was a death license. Then it was it was a guarantee, yeah. and and Bobby's mom wrote me a letter after you know, which was horrific. She said that Bobby just didn't want you to know, and he felt ashamed. Um, you know, so I missed out on a chance to see him. You know, he felt shame. How sad that we we've lived time when people felt that way, and we still do, right? I mean, we still do where people don't you don't say this, you don't say that, or whatever. So mm-hmm. my goodness, in the United States now, states that the don't say gay bill. You're, yeah, you're rewinding backwards. the clock. We are. We <laughs> are literally rewinding the clock. Yeah, which is uh, just horrific. I don't it's think you'd choose it. I don't. I I don't think I'd choose it. I, it's. Uh, oh I, no. Had the choice. You know, people say it's a choice. It isn't a choice, and I. Mm. And if I had the chance, I wouldn't have chosen it because it's. It was. You know, a really tough. Tough, and especially when you're do- you're in a very male-dominated profession, and all the blokes think is you haven't had you know the proper. How can I say in a podcast? You know, you can you say it. You just need a proper fucking jacket, and then you'll be fine. Wow, always got so dildos at the office lunches and things. You know, every time, and you can, and looking at penetration is the way forward for anything to do with sexuality and. I don't know. It was just tiring. It was just absolutely tiring. And yeah. So you just have to kind of shrug your shoulders and kind of get on with it. I think it's important to say those things out loud as well. I was talking to my husband just yesterday about this. And I mean, I called something out. It was just little daily casual misogyny. And he was like, God, you're always on about it. I'm like, I'm calling it out because we hear it, but you walk past it and it doesn't affect you. But I think by calling it out, the shock factor that you felt, Jackie, and that we felt hearing that is is acknowledged by people that probably don't realize how bad it is. So I think it's really important to use that language. The, one of the most shocking things that I read in your book, Jackie, was an initiation stamping. practice. Stamping. stamping. Yeah, you've got the office stamp, you know, like, 
in the old days before computers, you know, document received, it would stamp mm-hmm. it. The ID investigation department, criminal investigation department, and, and it'd give you the date. We used to get your backside stamped. That was quite common for women. Because I've done kind of Radio 4 programs called Women in Blue and spoke to lots and lots of police officers and women officers. And the common denominator was that, being stamped on your backside. What does that mean to the audience? Okay, so I was a detective sergeant in the provincial force in the 70s before I transferred to the Met Police. So I was new to that department because of Sexual Discrimination Act had only come in in 1975. So prior to that, police women were in a completely different department and did different things. But then when we were integrated, if you like, and then I was in the CID, so at the end of the shift, then they'd get two or three men and get hold of you. And then they'd just um, pull your skirt up or your dress and pull down your, your tights and underwear. And then they'd stamp you and say, you know, you're one of us. It's initiation thing. And the men didn't get an initiation. And then they got me another time for the same. Have you been stamped? Yeah, I've been stamped. Well, just in case you haven't, we're doing it again. This was then like, you know, two weeks later. So what do you do with it? I think the whole point about it is what what do you do with it? Where do you go? What do you say? And there is that part of me that really wanted to belong. So you just go celebrate, just get on with it, Jackie. And yeah, then that's what I did. Just got on with it. Yeah. I mean, when I read that, I was it was really shocking to me, and I still feel quite sick in my stomach thinking that you went through that. I'm sorry you went through that. Do you feel like the culture that was there was you had to change and there was no place for a woman as a police yes. person? So as a detective sergeant, obviously, you had more responsibility because you were one rank you know, above PC or DC or whatever, but they always used to give you the rubbish jobs. So when the jobs were allocated to the crimes, you'd always get the rubbish ones, absolutely. And that was something you say, again, do you moan about it? Do you just get on with it? Or what do you do? And stuff. So you have to kind of work out a formula for yourself. So I knew a lot of the sex workers in an area of Leicester where I used to work, et cetera, and I'd have quite a few informants. I was a good talker. When guys were arrested or women were arrested, I could chat, chat, chat. And I got lots of information that way, sometimes on purpose, sometimes inadvertently, but it worked for me. So you just think, what is your best strategy here to get on with the job and do the job that you want to do instead of having to listen or kind of conform to what they wanted you to do? So you could kind of weave your way to doing what you wanted to do, and that's how I did it. I think it helps if, you know, if you do have some superiors who recognize your skills and and back you up. I mean, I certainly had a couple. I remember after 9-11 and I had been asked by my head of office to temporarily take on the position as the terrorism supervisor for the state, which was a a big responsibility and and a time when we had no idea this was going to happen. Yeah. But it was my job. So I did it. And I had older agents, male agents there were three, you said, well, we're not working for you. We're going to go talk to the boss. Like as if we didn't have enough stress at the time anyway. And hold on, we're talking 9-11. We're talking what, 2001? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, September 2001. And I'm the acting terrorism supervisor. And I'm, yes, and I'm working in a command post where we're all working a bunch of hours. And I will point out 
just for a side note that I was at that time divorced with two little children. Uh, and I lived an hour from the office where wow. I had to go every day. And we were on 12-hour shift. So I really didn't have time to take any shit from anybody. Yeah. And I think it wasn't about experience. I think it was because I was a female. I don't think oh, ever so. they would have ever said that in any circumstance. If it was a younger guy. What happened? And, well, I never saw those guys, you know, again that day. And later I went up to the boss's office and I said, did these people stop in? And he said, oh yeah, they did. And I said, what'd you tell them? And, and he said, I told him, do your job and get out of my office. So like, good boss, but you don't always get that. Did either of you ever have that sort of full circle moment where you got to confront those people that were so misogynistic back in the day? I mean, we're talking 2001 for you, but like Jackie, you're talking, you know, decades ago that this happened. And what happened to you in that, even in that stamping situation would now be viewed as sexual assault. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, no. So a lot of their behavior is tribal, I think. And so if you spoke to people on a one-to-one, then they were absolutely fine. But So the guy who was on the flying squad who told me that he wasn't working with a woman, I don't know, in the book, he says Mm -hmm. he's the same rank as me, detective sergeant. I'm a detective sergeant. My first day on the flying squad, he said, why don't you fuck off, you cunt? He said, I'm not working with a woman. And years later... I'm a detective inspector and I'm in a different Scotland Yard department and he comes into my team where I'd been there for a bit. So he starts going on about what's your girlfriend, you know, she's a Leslie and all of that type of thing. And it's about six foot three. And so I remember scraping my chair back in my office and saying, you outside now. And I got into the corridor and I stood on my toes and I put my finger up far up his nose as I could and said so you just try it sunshine you just try it I'm the senior DI this time not you and if you try it I'll be down the commander's office like a photo of a drain pipe do you understand and he went <laughs> no trouble from me and that actually you know, squashed it on the head because this time I was the senior DI and it was not about being the senior DI but I wasn't having any of his shit and I'd had enough of him. And so, and then and the thing about it all is, the thing about this, and I'm sure you've experienced it both yourself, what you realize is these guys like him, bullies, they suffer from low self-worth. They feel inadequate yeah. within a group of men. And the only way that they can kind of deal with that is to project. And the fact that they will project onto, you know, yourself because you're the woman. And you could just see see what he was doing he couldn't see what he was doing consciously yeah. yeah so and then when we did prime suspect with linda laplante i told her all about him and then she created this character called sergeant otley played by tom bell yeah. and had loads of phone calls loads of jar we know that is jackie well done <laughs> revenge is best sub cold so i'd waited way you know over a decade to get my own back on him wow. i mean it just happened to mention it to linda laplante so she said Oh, this is great drama. I'll, I'll use it. And yeah, I got my own back. Wow. I love that. Revenge is a dish best served and, cold suits yeah. that perfectly. Because I, when I'm hearing you, you two talk, I, I'm simmering like a kettle. And I can just imagine like having to deal with that every day. I think I, I would be on the other side of the bars. I mean, I 
I think it takes an amazing inner strength to be able to hold your nerve and keep your eye on the prize. You have to really just constantly push it aside and just do your job. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital or maybe you just lost it? Well, stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, Head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. I worked with some really pieces of work in this one office. I mean, they were just, but one of them, his view is that women belonged pregnant at home and he was very vocal about it. But this other guy said, can you come to this prove up? Because there were only four of us who worked in the office. And it was a bit of ways from the main office. And he needed somebody to to prove up on a case. You know, a lineup is in person. Mm-hmm. But when you prove up somebody, it's on a card with pictures. And the victim was a 16-year-old girl, a local, you know, carny coming through, had had sex with her. And that's a federal violation of the Mann Act where you have take somebody across state lines who was a minor and, and have sex with them. So there's a federal law called the Man Act. And I know that's a weird name, but it's just named after a person. And not the whole gender. Not the whole gender, although it's appropriate. <laughs> um, and uh, and when it's kind of ironic. And <laughs> I mean, say it like you see it. <laughs> right, exactly. So imagine how stupid this guy must have been that we went to this young lady's house and her brother was like 10. He was there and she lived in a really poor area, really poor area. And we went to a house. So the agent said, well, we want to talk to your daughter. And they were okay. And he shows this picture 
to this girl, her 10 year old brother and says, did you have sex with this guy in front of her parents and 10 year old? Mm -hmm. And of course she's 15 or 16. What does she say? No, no, no. I knew that he had embarrassed that girl to no end at that moment. And I said to him, Gene, that's his name, Gene. I said, Gene, I'm going to take her for a walk. Why don't you talk to the boy? Yeah. And I took her for a walk and I just talked to her about respecting herself and not letting advantage of her in the future. And eventually we walked our way back towards the house. Gene was standing next to his car. So he was like, where have you guys been? I'm like, dude, doing your fucking job. So it wasn't my case. It was his case. And she walked past Gene and she said, I want to look at the pictures again. Oh, wow. And he flipped up the prove up pictures and she said, that's the guy. Yeah, well done. Yeah. It's all about the nuances, isn't it? It's about the complexities and often with that linear thinking that some men have. I'm yes, sure that is now. so true. Yeah. It's a linear thinking. Did you or didn't you? Yeah, black or white? Yes or no, boss? Life isn't like that. It really isn't like it. And I think that's where women are far better in many, many aspects. Not all of them, but, you know, trying to kind of get underneath the issue. So I always quote the same kind of thing, but, you know, uh, some kids arrested. Did you break that window? Throw a brick through that step- stepfather's window. Yes, I did. Yeah, you nick the criminal damage, but why did you do it? Why did you throw that brick through your stepfather's window? And then it opens up as to much wider. And the answer is because he's been sexually abusing me for the last, you know, God knows how long. And I think that there's a difference about trying to get underneath. Well, in my day, the police weren't interested in the whys and the wherefores. I don't know about you, Catherine, with the FBI, but they're not interested. So did you do it? Yes, mm-hmm. yes or no. And no, they a- just want to put nick this guy, put him yeah. in. And let him out. Six months later, he comes back to doing the same thing. Exactly. I want to ask you this. Why do you feel compelled to do what you do now when you could just be hanging on the Riviera? Oh, <laughs> hanging on the Riviera, yeah. So I kind of realized that I was using alcohol, so I looked at my own addiction and thinking, this isn't me, this is not who I am, etc. And I knew that there was something deeper inside of me and I didn't know how to access it. I don't think I'd lost myself along the way and I wanted to find that true sense of self where I could validate myself because I'm not making any excuses or I'm not blaming anybody. But when you're in an organization, you know, you always this self-doubt comes in when there's constant criticism, there's constant kind of negative behaviors and stuff. It all becomes a bit of a habit and, you know, and, and thinking, well, this is this true? Is it not true? How do I hold on to myself in this very male-dominated profession. So that alcohol would ease it for a little bit. So cut a long story short, I, I don't drink. I uh, haven't had a drink for 30 years. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. Wow, congratulations. Thank you very much. I went very to impressive. Alcoholics Anonymous. And part of giving back is to do service, and that can be any form of service. So I went to university because I'd found 11 plus, so I got my and two masters, and one of those masters is a master of science in addiction psychology. So then I thought, I know criminals, I know about criminality, I know about addiction, so where can I best use that? And the best place to use it was prison. And I love it. I absolutely love it. I can't tell you the satisfaction. And I'm just supporting a double lifer that's been released, and I'm seeing him next Monday. And, I mean, I see him quite often. 
but the, the, I just wanted to make a date in the diary before Christmas and stuff. He just said, you made my day, Jackie. And I've supported him for maybe five or six years through the prison service system, so he's been in closed conditions, then open conditions, and now he's out in approved premises. He's got a job, et cetera, et cetera. But he killed two people in a 10-day binge 30-odd years ago when he was 28. He's now 60, so 32 years ago. And so we've had to have a look at his behaving, his offending, his addiction, et cetera. And it's a gift. I mean, it is a gift that these people trust you. That's the yeah. point. They trust me. And they will tell me things that they say they've never told another human being. Not, I can't tell you the privilege it is for me that these men trust me. I just had one. Uh, it's just been released again. He was in for two domestic violence offences. He'd been in prison for both of them. And he thinks, well, I'm a, I'm a nice guy, Jackie. I'm a really nice guy, you know. I'm a nice guy. It's only circumstances. So, again, a bit like one of my CID detectives was very, very tough on him, very, very tough on him, and looked at his controlling issues. He's a massive controller. Those were the issues, work, and right. aspect of his life, etc. And, you know, to be fair to him, he didn't like it, but he took it on the chin. And then he will say, you know, you've changed my life, Jackie. I said, no, I haven't changed your life. You've changed your life. I've just facilitated the process. I but think, what a gratifying thing. That's yeah. how wonderful you must feel when you have that kind of impact. Yeah, and I think what it is and it isn't, but they have to do the work. That's the point. So I facilitate sure. it. You take it or you leave it. And he took it. And many of them take it. Many of them take it in order to help themselves. And I think this guy, you know, he is an absolutely you know, lovely, lovely man. And I, and I kind of get them to look themselves in the mirror every day in the prison, if there is a mirror in the prison. Say, look yourself in the mirror every day. Start to like yourself. Because many of them just really, really, really despise themselves and they can't bear to see themselves. So you start by just saying, look yourself in the mirror. You know, Sometimes they can't take that first step, right? Just pretend to be who you want to be and you will become that person. Yeah, we call it in AAs, we call it fake it to make it. So you fake <laughs> yeah, it. There you go. And that's exactly the right. same thing. If you don't like, you know, going to AA meetings for in the first few months or something, just fake it, keep on. And then eventually you will become the person that you always wanted to be because you learn to validate yourself from the inside. Whereas we seek, lots of us um, in addiction especially, they seek to anchor themselves externally. In Sometimes I did that just to be an agent. I kind of did a little fake it till I make it as a young agent. Yeah. Because I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. I've got no yeah. idea how to make podcasts, so I think we've all been outed here. Um, <laughs> <It's indeed. laughs> entire day, faking it till I make it. I love it. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. Go ahead and tell us where people can find, again, all things Jackie Melton if they want to find you, Jackie. Well, I'm on, obviously, social media. My Twitter handle is called at Thursley, T-H-U-R-S-L-E-Y, at Thursley. I'm linked in my book is The Real Prime Suspect, which you can easily get on Amazon in all forms. And that's about it, really. One final question from me. What do you think you're most proud of in your career overall? I'm proud of my humanity. That's what I'm proud of, my humanity. And I wasn't judgmental. And I often stood in their shoes where I could.
Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.